2007, October 12. Today is Lecture 17 on the Shoulders of Giants, Isaac Newton and the Laws of Motion. This is the last lecture in our sequence of Unit 3 on the rise of modern astronomy. And we've gone come an awful long ways so far. We've, we ended yesterday with a discussion of Galileo Galilei and his applications of the telescope and ended that lecture by discussing some of Galileo's troubles with the Roman Catholic Church, which he is actually as well known for as his telescopic observations. It is one of the, the tragedies of that entire situation is it probably was fully avoidable. There, there were no real, you know, certainly there were losers all the way around, but there were no real devils and angels in the whole situation. Everyone did something wrong, and the whole situation just got, got out of control on them. Basically, Galileo's enemies were able to make an example of him. The intention of going before the Inquisition and the punishment that he received was really designed to humiliate him. Well, if the church wanted to silence him, or his enemies wanted to silence him in discussion of the Copernican theory, they failed. Because the idea was out there. One of the things that Galileo did that really was important is not so much... His telescopic observations really did was he made intellectual consideration of the Copernican system important. He showed people that whether you agreed or disagreed, it had to be taken seriously and it had to be subjected to test. He really changed the rules of the intellectual discourse of Europe at the time. Before that, people could be on the fence. Now, the data were starting to come in, the techniques had advanced to the point that you could no longer be on the fence. You had to make a decision. You had to confront these ideas head on. And that's, I think, the real achievement of Galileo in his telescopic observations. While he was in house arrest, he picked up work that he had dropped as a young man. He'd been working on the mechanics of motion. He'd been studying how bodies move under the, under, under the force of gravity, how things interact with each other. And he really was doing a set of fundamental experiments which were to lay the foundations of now what we call classical physics. And for reasons no one really is sure, he's kind of just stopped that work halfway through and, and ended up, of course, getting his real fame as, as for the telescope. But under house arrest, during the later years of his life, he picked that work back up again. And he wrote a book called On the Two New World Systems. The two new, I'm sorry, On the Two New Sciences. And in that book, he went back over all his old experiments in mechanics. And in that book is all the foundations of modern kinematics, so basically the descriptions of the motions of massive bodies. Among other things in that book is a description of a pendulum. And it was only a few years after Galileo's death that someone actually took that and actually developed the first pendulum clock. It was actually a Galilean invention. This was to be fairly important because we saw in previous lectures that Ptolemy and Copernicus had one goal in mind, and that was to preserve appearances. Their systems were exceedingly complex because they were describing what are complex motions seeing the moving planets from the perspective of a moving Earth makes for very complex motions from night to night and year to year. But they were only concerned with making certain they made good predictions and not really describing the actual underlying reasons for those motions. And so, for example, in Ptolemy's system or even in Copernicus's, there's no reason why Mars had the period it did. Why did it take Mars the time it took to make one complete circuit of the sky with respect to the stars? It could have, in principle, had any speed. All that was important from the perspective of your models is that you tuned up the epicycles so that you got the right answer. But that seems kind of a backwards way to proceed. What you'd really like to do is say, what are the underlying reasons for why the planets move the way they do, and then demonstrate that the planets are moving because it's the only way they can move. 
It's not an arbitrary clockwork machinery of wheels within wheels that Ptolemy or Copernicus would have put forward. And it was Kepler who really began it to get at that question of what the reasons for the motion were. And it was Kepler who saw more clearly than anyone before him how, what the true motions were, that orbits were ellipses with the sun at one focus. He could describe it, but he couldn't tell you why it had to be an ellipse and why the sun at one focus. He found the equal areas law. You know, that all the different changes of speeds, you simply tuned up or you added or subtracted circles within circles until everything just came out right. And Kepler threw that machinery away and he replaced it with a very simple geometric description. You draw a line from the planet to the sun and as the planet sweeps around its orbit, the line from the planet from the sun sweeps out equal areas in equal times. And it explains why when Mars is closest to the sun in its orbit, it moves proportionally faster and why when it's further, it moves proportionally slower. Because that exact proportion gives you equal areas and equal times. It's a geometric description of the motion, but it isn't just arbitrary combinations of wheels within wheels. It's a very simple, straightforward rule. But, but, but why does it follow that rule? Why that rule and not uh, equal areas in square root of time or something else like that? He couldn't describe it, but he knew what he was seeing was a glimpse of what those underlying rules were. And nowhere was that more evident in Kepler's third law, that the period squared was proportional to a cubed. There it said, Mars didn't have the period it had because of some accident of, of, of nature, because it's the only period it can have. That the square of the period knows about the size of the orbit cubed. And it's a whole number ratio. It's not p proportional to a, it's not p squared proportional to a to the fourth, it's p squared proportional to a cubed. It means something. But what? Kepler couldn't answer the what. He couldn't answer that final question. He knew this was giving him a glimpse of the underlying physical laws of motion. But he lacked two things. He lacked a proper understanding of what the laws of motion in general were, how bodies behave in response to being pushed and pulled by forces. He had the wrong notion of a force. He had a common sense notion of a force, but was missing one part of it. And the second thing is, Poor Kepler did not have the language. He did not know how to describe the mathematics of change, to talk about things sweeping through space. He simply couldn't write it down. Galileo made a start. What Galileo's later work in life was to begin that investigation, what are the laws of motion? But even Galileo failed in many cases. Galileo never let go of uniform circular motion, for example, the idea that it was some kind of perfect motion. That's still stuck in there. It really remained to come up with two things, to really bring a, a physics of motion together, to understand the fall of an apple upon the earth and the fall of the moon about the earth under the influence of gravity. And it required coming up with the mathematical language that allowed you to express those things in a quantifiable form. That was not to happen in the generation of Kepler and Galileo. It was to happen in the following generation in the hands of one man only, Isaac Newton. Today, the key ideas are different than any key ideas I've presented, presented in this entire class. It's not going to be the points of the lecture, but the most important conclusions. What Newton discovered was that the laws of motion can be broken down. All motions throughout the universe can be understood because of three simple, mathematically expressible laws called the three laws of motion. The first law of motion states, in general language, that objects in motion remain in motion unless acted upon by an outside force. The second law says that 
Acceleration, the change of motion, is proportional to the force applied and inversely proportional to the mass. That is, force is equal to mass times acceleration. This is not going to be an obvious statement right now, but we're going to see how this is a little bit later. And finally, the third law, the least obvious law of all, to every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. That forces are not alone, that forces come in equal and opposing pairs. So the first law describes what motion is and what rule motion obeys. The second law tells you how you change motion. It's a response to a force. And the third law tells you how forces interact. With those three pieces, you can build the entire universe, or enough of it to matter. Let's see how this came about. Isaac Newton was born in Woolsthorpe in rural England on Christmas Day in the year 1642, the same year of the death of Galileo. He was, uh, his mother's, his father died before he was born, and his mother um, very quickly remarried shortly after Newton's birth. As was common for the England of this day, the children from a previous marriage were typically sent away from the family of the new husband, and in fact, in this case, uh, Newton was sent, Isaac, young Isaac was sent to his maternal grandmother's house to be raised. He, in many ways, felt completely betrayed by his mother, and this colored his character for most of his life. He grew up, as a consequence, a very, very solitary boy and was quite unfit for the life that his class would have fitted him for, which is that of sort of a middle-level gentleman farmer out in rural England. As a consequence, as he grew into an adult, he was quiet, irascible, and he was solitary. He never married. He had very few close friends. He was not, in many ways, a very nice guy. He was, however, brilliant. But his brilliance was colored by the fact that he was always afraid that people were going to steal his ideas from him and claim credit from things. So he was a very pugnacious fellow. He was always getting into arguments with people over things like credit for discovery of things. In Newton's case, he had an awful lot to argue about as it would happen. As a young man, he was able to be of just enough of a social standing to get into Cambridge. At this time, Cambridge was becoming a bit more open. You didn't have to be in the very upper classes. He graduated from Cambridge in the year 1665, at the age of barely 22. The difference to remember is, at this time, a Cambridge education that he received would have been equivalent to receiving your PhD at the age of 22, not a bachelor's degree. Newton was, by all measures, brilliant, and his brilliance was completely off scale. This is Newton's house. It's still preserved in Woolsorp. Um, it's part of the National Trust in Britain. It's in a beautiful countryside location. And interestingly, for a story that we'll hear on Monday, uh, next to these, those are, in fact, apple trees. The key moment of change in Newton's life occurred just after he completed school in Cambridge. For those of you who've studied uh, English literature may remember Samuel, uh, may have read works by Samuel Pepys, particularly the Journal of the Plague Years. That particular plague year was the appearance of the bubonic plague, an outbreak that ran through England and most of northern Europe, in the years 1665 and 1666. As was the practice in the time, you wanted to get out of Dodge. You wanted to get out of the big cities because that's where crowded people easily transmitted nasty, deadly disease, and of course all the rats with the fleas that actually transmitted that disease were, 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 were found. Cambridge University was closed for the epidemic, and everyone was sent home, including Newton, who was about to transition directly from being a student to being on the faculty at Cambridge. But they closed the doors, and Newton went home to Woolsthorpe, where he had some time to basically cool his heels for almost two years before the plague finally ran its way down. Now, some of you may know that in 1918, there was a massive influenza epidemic, the so-called Spanish flu that spread throughout the world. Ohio State University actually shut down during that epidemic. 
And we actually have a contingency plan in the case of something like, say, avian flu. If that actually turns into a worldwide pandemic, we hope not, the university will, in fact, close. You will all be sent home, and we'll, we'll figure out how to deal. That's how we're going to deal with that. Now, I would imagine, though, that if we were to close the university for a whole year, say, while dealing with pandemic influenza, it's very unlikely, as you went home to spend your year waiting for the university to reopen, that you would have done quite what Newton did during the plague years. During the plague years, he invented the integral and differential calculus, the first major advance in mathematics in more than a thousand years. He developed the binomial theorem, which was to lay the fundamental basis of mathematical statistics until our own century. He started fundamental work on optics that was basically to replace all previous work on optical phenomena and lay the fundamental foundations of geometric optics. The eyeglasses you wear have a direct, uh, direct uh, application back to Newton's optics. And he furthermore solved the three millennium old problem of why it is the planets move the way they do, exactly derived Kepler's laws from first principles and invented the law of gravity. That's, that's pretty good for hanging out on a rural world star for two years waiting for the plague to go away. But then again, Newton's character comes back into play. Here he made not one, but almost a half a dozen fundamental discoveries, any individual one of which would have guaranteed his fame forever, and he published absolutely none of it. He locked it all away, and in fact, the very first of these works was not to be published for another 20 years. Because Newton didn't want to be laughed at, and he didn't want people stealing his work and claiming it for its own. But that pause was actually to be somewhat useful. At the age of 26, he, uh, the Cambridge reopened and, and Newton returned to Cambridge as the location professor of mathematics at Trinity College. Well, if any of you have been to, to Cambridge University, Trinity is a very, very pretty old college. It goes way back a long ways. To give you an idea again of sort of the scale of this professorship, Newton was 26 years old. He had just finished his PhD, uh, the equivalent of his PhD. He'd spent two years tooling around on his farm, okay, making six fundamental discoveries, um, but he didn't publish any of it, so no one else knew he had done this. And he became the location professor. Nowadays, to become the location professor of mathematics at Cambridge, you have to be one of the best and brightest of your generation. The current holder of the location chair of, of mathematics at Cambridge is Stephen Hawking. He settled into the life of a Cambridge Don. This is basically tenure plus. Um, being a Cambridge professor at this time was basically pretty close to a life of luxury. You were given a place to live, you were given a salary, and kind of light teaching duties. And even then, Newton wasn't so good at that. He continued his fundamental work on optics. In fact, during this period, he invented the reflecting telescope, which is actually the basis of all modern um, te research telescopes used in the world. He carried out a variety of experiments in optics and began his dabbling in alchemy. We remember Newton as the father of physics, but we forget that most of the energies of his life was spent looking for the philosopher's stone and trying to turn lead into gold, believe it or not. He was as much subject to the madnesses of his day as anyone else. He, unlike perhaps some professors you might know, uh, never prepared for class, hated to teach, and in fact at one point he was teaching a mathematics class and it was so bad that one day he showed up and no one was there and he just shrugged his shoulders and went back to his room. It didn't bug him a bit. He was not someone who you would want for your research advisor, however brilliant he was. Now, we're going to fast forward a bit <clears throat> to London, 1860, 1684. At 
that time, London was, was really becoming the intellectual center of the world. If the trial of Galileo perhaps did not silence Galileo, it cast an absolute pall over the Catholic world. The intellectual center of Europe shifted from Italy in the Italian Renaissance northward to Germany and actually into England, was now going to be where all the action was going to be, because it was only in the relatively liberal Protestant land of England that you actually could discuss things that were uncomfortable otherwise. That wasn't always exactly the case, but it certainly was a lot more free. Furthermore, the Royal Society of London had been founded. It was the first professional scientific organization really in the world, or certainly anything that resembled it since antiquity, which provided a society for all the scientists of the nation of England to get together to discuss ideas and a basis for publishing them, and it had a because it was thought to be useful to industry and useful to trade, it had a regular income from the English crown. So there was a way for not only people to discuss their ideas and correspond with other scientists in a free and freewheeling environment, it also provided a way to publish your results and spread those results as widely as possible. It sounds like a small thing, but it actually turned out to be a huge reason for why Newton was to have the impact that he did. The core of the Royal Society of this time was three men. Edmund Halley, a mathematician, astronomer, and geographer, who we now know for the discovery of Halley's Comet. Christopher Wren, who was really in many ways the father of modern architecture, the builder, for example, of St. Paul's Cathedral, and the principal architect of the rebuilding of London after the fire, the Great Fire. And William Hooke, who was, among other things, the inventor of the modern compound microscope, a much greater improvement over ancient microscopes, and also worked did fundamental work on physics of mechanics. Those three brilliant friends would get together to drink coffee and talk science and talk philosophy and other things. There was no distinction between those at the time. And they got into a discussion of Kepler's laws, and they tried to wonder, well, why was it that Kepler had that the motion of an object was an ellipse with the sun at one focus? And Hooke was wondering if this wasn't, in fact, what motion should be of an object under the influence of a central force. But they didn't know how to compute it. And they talked about this a lot, and Halley, for whatever reason, had to go down to Cambridge and they ended up going to visit Newton, and he asked him, just off the top of his head, say, well, we were having this discussion, and we didn't know what the shape, what, what the path would be for an object moving under the influence of a central force. And Newton answered immediately, it would be an ellipse with the central force center at one focus. And Halley said, well, how do you know that, Isaac? Isaac said, because I have computed it. Kepler's law Sun with the, sun, the orbit is an ellipse with the sun at one focus was purely empirical. It was a geometric description told to him by the data from Tycho Brahe. Nobody had ever computed it from first principles. But here was Newton just saying, oh, I've already computed that. So Halley asked to see the calculation. Well, somewhere in this stack of, think of the ultimate absent-minded professor stacks of papers everywhere. Newton couldn't find it. So, so Halley kind of worked on him and said, look, reproduce it. So Newton said, okay, I'm going to go away, and I'm going to reproduce this work from 20 years ago on motion of objects under central forces. It took him three years to reproduce that work. And he kept stopping the work, and he'd go interested to go do something in alchemy for a while, and Halley had to basically go down to Cambridge and kick his butt. He had to basically wheedle, conjole, flatter him. Oh, Newton, you're so fa you, you've got to do this. Oh, it's going to be so great. Finally, Halley agreed to even pay the full publication costs out of his own pocket. And he was not a wealthy man because he knew what Newton had was so important. And finally, Newton finished it in the year 1687, and Halley did, in fact, pay for the publication costs with the help of the Royal Society, and it came out in the year 1680, 
actually it was written in 1686, 1687 was the year of completion. The book he wrote was in Latin. It was a very detailed, very complicated mathematical and geometrical text with the Latin title Philosophiae Naturalis Principia Mathematica, the mathematical principles of natural philosophy. It was, despite its rather unassuming front cover, here's Isaac Newton at this time and Edmund Halley in contemporary portraits of the day, it was published in London uh, by, uh, from the press of the, of the Royal Society of London. The uh, editor of the press was, again, that very same Samuel Pepys, who we've mentioned before, and it was authored by I.S. Newton, Trinity College, Lucasian professor of mathematics and member of the Royal Society. This is one of those handful of books that you really can say truly did change the world. Because after the publication of the Principia and it spread through the Royal Society, the last vestiges of the Aristotelian world were simply wiped away. But they were not just wiped away, they were replaced with a completely new way of describing those motions, which, to give you an idea of its influence now, more than 300 years later, if you were a physics major taking Physics 101, the physics you would be learning in that class is essentially the physics of the Principia Mathematica. It is such a synthesis of all those rules that it basically, just in one complete stroke, wiped out 3,000 years of trouble and explained just about everything. Not everything, but pretty darn close. What Newton really accomplished in many ways was a synthesis. The ideas were all there floating about. The mechanics of Galileo, the observations of Galileo that made you take this Copernican system seriously. Kepler's empirical laws based on the naked eye data of Tycho Brahe and the perspective afforded by putting the sun and not the earth at the center of the solar system brought back into the European consciousness by the work of, 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 of Copernicus. But Newton did not reproduce the Copernican system. He simply threw it away and started over from scratch and showed that the motions in the heaven are not just anything. They are what they are because they are behaving according to universal physical laws and that those universal physical laws can be stated, they can be stated mathematically, and they can be used to make new and quantifiable predictions. He didn't simply try to extend or modify the methods and, and principles of Aristotle. He simply crumpled them up and threw them into the dustbin of history. The Principia Mathematica lays the basic foundations of modern physics with the exception of electrodynamics and the properties of the atom, but everything else is there. Using just the calculational methods and principles of the Principia, you could actually navigate a spacecraft throughout the solar system without having to resort to modern, other than modern technology to pull off the engineering feat, the basic physics of celestial navigation is there. It swept away the last vestiges of the Aristotelian world and replaced older empirical descriptions that preserved appearances with quantifiable physical explanations of the nature of these motions that could be computed from first principles using straightforward mathematics. What he really did was he took all the different motions and all the different phenomena of the world that were involved in motion and showed that they could be understood using three simple mathematical laws. What he did was a problem of unification. The motion of the moon, the motion of the Mars, and the fall of an apple upon the earth are all governed by the same laws. The same laws below are universal and they rule throughout the universe. That is a major and radical change of thinking. Aristotle would have said that there are the rules that occur in the realm of change in the sublunar world of growth and decay on the earth, but the eternal heavenly rules follow different rules. And Newton said none of that's true. The moon is falling about the earth the same way that an apple falls to the earth. It's just simply a difference of position and condition. They all follow the same basic three rules. 
What are those three rules? We call them laws because it's kind of a tradition to do so. You shouldn't think of them as laws like, you know, carved in stone. But they turn out to be basic guiding principles for the way these motions are described. They work as follows. The first law, and now the statement I'm going to use is an English translation from the Latin in the Principia. Everybody will stay in a state of rest or, and I underline, uniform motion in a straight line unless that state is changed by forces impressed upon it. What Newton is stating is actually a very common sense observation about the world that is now known as the law of inertia. It was first given its actual modern um, formulation by Galileo Galilei at the end of his life. Is the law of inertia is basically that property of matter that it resists having its state of motion changed. Now, we need a mass point, so I got my massive object here, Marvin. Let's put Marvin on the ground. Marvin is in a state of rest with respect to us. No forces are acting upon it. What if I want to change Marvin's, Marvin's motion? Well, I have to impress a force upon it. Well, that changes it. Or I pick it up and I hurl it across the room. Now, Marvin's going to get some abuse today. What's different is I've set, the, I've set Marvin into motion. Marvin is set into motion because he's res- the mass in Marvin is responding to the forces that I'm impressing upon it. But Newton took this one step further and said, let's get rid of all the friction in the air and the room and everything else. And I go out into empty space and I take Marvin and I wind up and I pitch. I give Marvin a certain speed in a certain direction. If no other forces come into play, no air friction, no gravity, nothing, what's going to happen? Marvin just going to slow down and stop? No. If there are no forces acting, Marvin's just going to keep going that way, in that direction, in a straight line with that same speed, forever and ever, until he runs into a wall or something. Until some force, you don't have to say which force, any force comes along, that motion will not change. Similarly, if Marvin is at rest, If nothing bothers Marvin, no forces come along to change him from that state of rest. He will stay there at rest forever and ever. If I want to change the motion, either deflect Marvin's trajectory or kick Marvin into motion, I have to impose a force upon Marvin. So it says, first law is a description of motion. It's a common sense thing. If you get something moving, you've got to use a force to stop it. If something is stopped, you've got to apply force to get it moving. But he went one step further and said, what do we mean by in motion? Well, normally, Aristotelians, or all of us together, think of motion as the speed we've got. Einstein was right. Common sense is basically the collection of prejudices we've acquired by the age of 18. They more or less serve us in our daily lives, but sometimes they blind us to the subtleties underneath. It is a common sense thing that if something is going to get, have its speed changed, that's a change in motion. It's getting faster or it's getting slower. What Newton said was, now wait a minute, speed actually consists, all motion consists of two parts. There's the speed part that answers the question, how fast is it going? But there's a second part, and that's the direction of that motion. Which way is it going? If you had asked Aristotle, I throw Marvin to the left, with a certain path, that's one kind of motion, that's a speed in that direction, he'd say, eh, that's no different than picking up and throwing Marvin to the right. Newton would say, "Uh uh-uh. 
There is a fundamental difference, because even though I may throw Marvin with the same speed to the left or right, the fact that it's a different direction makes it a different motion. That we can't ask what is simply the speed, we must also ask what the direction is. And that gives us the definition of velocity. In everyday language, we use velocity and speed interchangeably, but to physics, to Newton, velocity is answering the question, how fast am I moving and in what direction? So velocity is inextricable from adding the direction there. It's how fast am I moving and in what way am I pointing? So that defines what I mean by moving. I've got a speed in a given direction. That's motion. If it's a constant speed in a constant direction, that's uniform motion. Notice I use the word uniform motion, but I don't have the word circular there. What does it mean to change motion? Ah, to change motion is to accelerate. Again, common sense. If I'm moving slowly and I speed up, that's acceleration. If I'm moving really fast and I slow down, that's kind of reverse acceleration, deceleration. What's changing? What's changing is my speed. Acceleration is a measurement of how fast your velocity is changing. Are you getting faster, faster, or slower, slower? Zero to 60 in 10 seconds, that's an acceleration. But, and here's the important but, the change in velocity can be a change in the speed, a change in the direction at constant speed, or both. Now, most people would say common sense, well, I'm accelerating now because I'm speeding up, and I'm decelerating because I'm slowing down. But you would not say that I was accelerating if I was swinging around at a constant speed. But I am accelerating, because even though I'm walking around at the same speed, I'm changing direction constantly. Because, after all, if there are no forces, I should be moving in a straight line at a constant speed. That I'm turning in a circle means I am subject to an acceleration. Here's an example. An apple. I've got a real one, but it's easier to see this one. The apple falls under the force of gravity, and it begins to accelerate. This acceleration is it changes its speed. It goes from slow to fast. But it's always moving in the same direction. I take the apple and release it. It falls in a straight line. It gets faster and faster and faster, and I catch it before it hits the ground, because this is part of my lunch. But it falls in a straight line. We would all agree, sure, that's accelerated motion. This is uniform circular motion, a ball being swung about on a string. Now, Aristotle and everyone else would say, constant speed, no acceleration. Newton says, uh-uh, Airy, you got it wrong. Yeah, the speed is constant, but if I freeze the motion at any given instant, even though the speed is the same, it's constantly changing direction. It is changing motion. Therefore, this ball is actually subject to an acceleration. Uniform circular motion, the bugaboo for 3,000 years, had to be the perfect form of motion. It's not perfect motion. It's accelerated motion. Something is accelerating this object. Something is changing the motion. Some force is acting upon it to keep it in uniform circular motion. And that's the key. This object does not look like it's accelerating to our common sense, but to Newton he's saying it's accelerating constantly. And if it's accelerating, that means it's changing its motion. If it's changing its motion, the first law tells me it must be subject to an outside force. 
So what is a force? And that is what the second law does. The second law is now the definition of what forces do when they encounter matter. In Newton's words, the size of an acceleration is directly proportional to the force applied and inversely proportional to the mass of the body. This is a common sense statement again. The other part of this is that boiling this down is that the resulting acceleration is in the same direction as the applied force. So I take Marvin at rest and I apply an upward force. Which way does Marvin accelerate? He goes up and then he comes down in response to the gravity force. I throw Marvin to the side and he changes his motion in the direction I threw him. I push you, you feel a force accelerating you backwards. You push me, I accelerate backwards. How much do I accelerate? Inversely proportional to the mass of the body. This is also a common sense statement and brings us to the mathematical expression of the second law. As Newton stated it, acceleration is equal to the force I apply divided by the mass of the body. That is, acceleration is proportional to the force and shares the direction of the force and inversely proportional to the mass. Again, common sense. I give David a chance to come up and run at me and say, hit me, try to tackle me. I'm a kind of light guy, more or less. I'm going to go smacking backwards. David comes at me with exactly the same force, but I replace myself by a member of the Buckeye's defensive line who weighs something over 300 pounds. Uh, that same force isn't going to produce a much less acceleration on the big guy and probably send David backwards. Okay, that I believe meets my obligation for a sports reference this week. My contract says I got to use a few every quarter. It's a common sense idea. If you want to accelerate something by pushing it, the bigger the object you're pushing, the slower it accelerates in response to your push. If I push on a little rolly cart, it moves a lot. If I push on a Mack truck, it don't move so much. Why? What's the difference? Same push, same muscle, same force, different mass. That's all. So I can turn this around and say, what force do I have to apply to a mass to achieve a certain acceleration? The answer is, the force to achieve an acceleration is equal to the mass times the acceleration that I want. I want more acceleration. I want twice the acceleration for a given mass. I've got to use twice the force. I want the same acceleration for twice the mass, I gotta use twice the force. It's two times bigger, I gotta push it two times harder to make it go faster. If I'm pushing a Porsche, how fast do I have to push it to go from zero to 60 in 10 seconds? A Mack truck is 10 times more massive. I need 10 times the force to make it go from zero to 60 in 10 seconds. The only difference is the mass. Force is mass times acceleration. What Newton has done is twofold. He's defined what it means by a force. It's a push or a pull that produces an acceleration in a mass. How much acceleration? The acceleration is inversely proportional to the mass and directly proportional to force and in the same direction. Having quantified it like that, now your correct notion of force is you can ask, when I apply a force to a mass, how does it move in response? The second law has two parts, therefore. First, it quantifies force in terms of its effect on a massive body. It's no longer a random push or pull. It says, forces are those things which make masses accelerate. Furthermore, the more mass a body has, the less a given force is going to accelerate. It tells you what the response is. It's directly proportional to the mass. Or rather, the acceleration is inversely proportional to the mass. 
The more the mass, the less you accelerate in response to a given force. The second part is that forces and accelerations have the same direction. If I push a body, it moves in that direction of the push. So if I can see in which direction is the motion changing, do I see a change in speed or a change in direction, that change in direction or change in speed is pointing in the direction of the origin of that force. Here's a demo. We're used to the idea that forces produce accelerations in the same direction. Again, the apple, I toss it up, I produce a motion that way. What if I wanted to produce a force at right angles? I have an example here. I have a Buckeye donut on a string. Now, we just learned from the first law that this is accelerated motion. Where is the force? Well, the force is what I keep pulling through the string to keep the acceleration going. What happens if I stop tugging on the string? The motion stops. It begins to follow what motion it is, but there, I never actually can fully make the force go to zero because there's always some tension in the string, so it does a little spiral in. What if I wanted to make it go faster? Well, I simply increase the force. How much? Eh, kind of double the force. The speed is constant, but the direction is constantly changing, so I've got to constantly apply a force. But what would happen if the string were to break? If I were to suddenly abruptly shut off the force. Okay, everybody, heads up. <laughs> it takes off in a straight line. The force is cut. It stops changing direction. But it keeps moving with the speed it had at that instant. Of course, we're in a room with air and there's gravity, so it deflects downward. But if we were in the vacuum of space, that donut would have taken off with the speed it had in uniform circular motion but in the direction it was going at the moment the force cut off, and it would keep going, a Buckeye Donut forever into space. In pictures, what we just did was we're swinging around here. The donut wants to go this way. An object in motion remains in motion with a constant speed unless acted upon by an outside force. So with no force in play, the donut would go off to the left here. But there's a force pulling down through the string there is an acceleration in the same direction as that force. Notice that these little arrows are parallel to each other, but the acceleration as arrow is smaller. How much does it accelerate? It's the force I'm applying through the string divided by the mass of the donut. Acceleration is force divided by mass. If that was a, ball bear, a gigantic bowling ball, which you would not want me to let the string go on, I would have to use a huge amount of force to get it going around there. But with the Buckeye donut, I just do a little bit of force. So what does that mean? The donut wants to go this way, but it feels an acceleration deflecting it onto a curved path. And so it continues around, but now if I cut the force, it has that speed in that direction because there is no force to cause it to deviate from that position. So uniform motion is uniform circular motion is accelerated motion. It's accelerated motion in response to a central force. In this case, the agency of the central force is me tugging on a string tied to the Buckeye Donut. And I know I can get away with this from Buckeye Donuts because I got those fresh this morning and they come stale right out of the fryer. I don't know how they do it, but it works wonderful for a demo. What about astronomy? What does this mean? I mean, the one thing to swing the donut around my head, what about planets? Well, planets are continually changing their speed and their direction as they move around their ellipses. Kepler told us they move on ellipses with the sun at one focus. 
the center of that focus of that force is there's a force from the sun pulling the planet towards it, but it's trying to move to the side. It moves faster at perihelion when, it's great, when it feels the greatest force when it's closest to the sun, and it moves slowest at aphelion when it's furthest from the sun and feels the least force. Why are the speed and direction constantly changing? Because the planet is accelerating in response to a force it is feeling. What is that force? It's the force of gravity. It's the force of the gravity of the sun tugging on the planet. That's what's keeping the, the planets locked in their orbit. They are moving in response to a central force. They are constantly changing speed and direction. If this planet was in a perfectly circular orbit, it would be in uniform circular motion but constantly accelerated because its direction of motion is changing all the time. Now we don't need to have arbitrary reasons for wheels turning upon wheels. We have principles for why those wheels change. Yes, sir? Sorry? Gravity causes retrograde. Gravity causes retrograde motion? No. Retrograde motion is simply an illusion of the fact we're watching the moving Mars from a moving Earth. What gravity does is it tells Mars how fast it should be moving for its mass at that distance from the Sun. In other words, I can derive Kepler's third law by knowing the law of gravity. We'll do that on Monday. The third law is the most difficult law of all. It's the least intuitive. It says, for every force applied to a body, there is an equal and oppositely directed force exerted in response. This is usually stated as, to every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. This is counterintuitive, because if you see an apple sitting on a table or being held up in my hand, you think... It's not moving, there's no forces acting. But there are forces acting. There are two forces at work. The acceleration of gravity times the mass of the apple is a downward gravitational force. If I took my hand out of the way, the apple's going to start falling. It's going to accelerate under the presence of gravity. So why is it sitting still? Because there is an equal and opposite counterforce pushing it upward. In this case, the force is the force in my muscles transmitted up through my arm. All right, that's intuitive. I can feel the heft of the apple. What, how much force do I have to put up? Exactly the force to counter the force of gravity. What's not as obvious is if I'm sitting it on the table, there's still a downward force due to gravity, and there's an equal and opposite counter force from the material forces of the table itself pushing back. We are not sensible of those forces because we're not in contact with it, and we see no motion. The net force is zero, but the forces are constantly acting. The net force is zero, therefore there is no net motion. We're not going to use this principle as much today, but on Monday when we discuss orbits, we're going to use this. Newton's laws, that's it. That's all there is to it. Objects in motion stay in motion unless acted upon by an outside force. What are forces? Forces are that which cause acceleration in the same direction as the force, but inversely proportional to the mass. How do forces interact? They always act so that equal and opposite reactions. So there's always a force and a counterforce acting at once. These three laws completely describe all motions. They provide a complete quantity description of motions of objects. They're easily stated mathematical and they're easily stated in words. They're universal. They apply everywhere in the universe, everywhere at once to objects either on the earth or the heavens. The same rules apply to the moon as apply to an apple. And they unify phenomena. Because now I don't need a separate explanation for the moon and a separate explanation for Mars. I need no wheels within wheels. They are simply following Newton's laws relentlessly through time. All I have to do is figure out how they are set up into that configuration. 
But to express these, we need a mathematics to actually take full advantage of the fact that we're moving. And the full statement of the laws is not as simple as I've shown here. It requires a new mathematical language, the calculus. This was independently invented by Isaac Newton and, and Gottfried Wilhelm von Leibniz. Calculus, if you want to know what your calculus cast is teaching you, calculus fundamentally is the mathematics of change. It gives us a way of describing a change in velocity of a moving object with time and making that change smooth rather than doing it in little stair-step motions. Calculus takes the static geometry of Euclid and sets that geometry into motion. So there was the language Kepler needed to describe the dance of the planets. He needed to set the music of the spheres in the notation of calculus, but he didn't have the calculus. Newton had to invent a whole new branch of mathematics to describe it. Calculus with the laws provides us with a framework for describing the motions and for making new predictions. I've been mentioning gravity over and over again, but we haven't said what gravity is or what its actual form is. And that's the question we're going to pick up on Monday morning. <laughs>